Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And every so often, I like to uh, devote a podcast to one of my old war stories, one of my adventures uh, along the way uh, in a very long career, a very blessed career as well. Uh, But um, this is a pilot story. And every pilot, especially every failed pilot, which this ultimately became, uh, certainly has a, a story and some craziness behind it. But this one has way more craziness than most. And so I want to tell you the story about how David Isaacs and I wrote a show called The Music Booker that you have never heard. It is a script that uh, is in a pile somewhere buried at CBS, but I happen to have a couple of copies, and uh, I went through it recently, and actually it wasn't that bad. I thought, oh, God, I haven't read this in 40 years. This is going to be awful, and actually it was pretty good. Anyway, here's the story. So it's like 1977, and David and I are the head writers of MASH, and needless to say, we're rather busy as a result of that. And we get a call, this was in the fall, from our agent, who said, are you guys interested in doing a pilot? There's a pilot assignment that is open. We said, no, we're just swamped here. We can't do a a pilot. And she said, well, okay, Uh, you know, it's a good opportunity to do a pilot and do your own show. It's like, we're buried here. Uh, You know, we got an OR scene to write uh, in the next 10 minutes. No, we're not going to do the pilot. She calls up uh, a couple hours later and goes, well, the producer is Alan Carr. It is a blind pilot commitment because CBS is dying to be in business with Alan Carr. So who is or actually was Alan Carr. Well, Alan Carr was a very flamboyant producer. He started out as a manager 
And he had some pretty big clients. He had Tony Curtis and Peter Sellers, Anne Margaret, Diane Cannon in the music industry, Mama Cass. It's kind of weird to think that Peter Sellers and Mama Cass were represented by the same guy, but still, Paul Anka, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, even Herb Alpert. Well, he also was known for throwing these really elaborate, splashy parties. In fact, one he threw a black tie affair for Truman Capote in jail. <laughs> so that gives you some idea. We are talking a showman here. He did the promotion for Saturday Night Fever. Then he went on and produced a little movie called Grease, which made a ton of money. He won a Tony for uh, the musical of Lacage of Faw. He was also the producer of the ill-fated Oscar cast, the one that is pretty notorious if you are a, uh, a fan of the Oscars or uh, a student of Oscar history and trivia. It's the one where Rob Lowe was dancing with Snow White. And if you're familiar, you go, oh, my God, this is truly the nadir of the Academy Awards, although the Academy Awards just seem to get worse and worse and worse. But that was really a terrible one. He died at 62, but like I said, he was quite a force. And in the late 70s, he was a major, major player to the point where CBS said, we want to be in business with you. We want you to do a half-hour sitcom. Whatever you want to do is fine with us. So it's not like we had to come up with an idea. We had to go into CBS. We had to pitch it. And we had to have stories. And we had to have leave-behinds and all that. No, none of that. It's like whatever he wanted, that's what they were going to do. We still said no. Uh, yeah, that makes it certainly more intriguing and certainly increases the chances of it getting made and getting on the air. But even if it got on the air, we're not going to leave MASH to do a show called The Music Booker. So it just doesn't make sense for us to do this pilot. So again, we passed. And a couple hours later, our agent calls yet again and tells us how much money they were willing to pay us. We said, when do we start? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know we're artists, uh, but well, we're also whores. Uh, so this is the story of the music booker. This is an idea that they had. And back in the 70s, there were a number of late night shows on the network once a week that were music oriented. NBC had a show called The Midnight Special. There was also uh, a show, that Don Kirshner, who was a Clive Davis-type uh, producer of uh, musical acts and things. Uh, he had a show as well. So these were popular shows. And the idea of this sitcom was a behind-the-scenes look at a show like the Midnight Special. 
and it would be centered around a perky young 20-something who is the music booker who had to book all of the acts. And so there was all of the craziness with uh, various rock stars, that type of thing. And uh, I remember we put in the description of the character in the pilot uh, a young Marlo Thomas. <laughs> Marlo Thomas was probably in her 30s then, but uh, still too old for us at that point. A young Marlo Thomas. You know, it could be any Karen Valentine, Sally Fields, Melanie Chardoff. There was like a, a, a million of those people, you know, around. You know, they were driving around the studios in makeup just waiting to land a pilot deal. So we thought, well, okay, um, this is something that we can write on the weekends, and so we'll do it. So we're going to meet with Alan at his home, and he lived in a mansion in Benedict Canyon, which is a canyon uh, near Bel Air and Beverly Hills and the Hollywood Hills and the west side of Los Angeles. And this one had a name. This was called Hillhaven Lodge. At one time, Ingrid Bergman had owned this place. This is such a Hollywood story, and it gets worse. On the front lawn was a giant statue of an Oscar. Perfect, right? Now, he had downstairs, we were not privileged to see it, but he converted the basement to a King Tut disco. And he frequently had disco parties at the Hill Haven Lodge. We had to be on the A-list to get invited. So far, we were not. So we show up at this house, and we're led into this expansive living room with all this weird, ornate furniture. And Mr. Carr is late. Mr. Carr is running late. Uh, they were filming Grease 2, all the unanswered questions in Grease 1, and uh, he was on hand to observe the filming, and it was going a little long, but uh, he would be there shortly. And he showed up about uh, 45 minutes late. You have to picture Alan Carr. He was like this cherubic guy. He was short. He was chubby. He was blonde with tortoise-shelled glasses, kind of like if Louis Anderson wore glasses or Paul Williams, someone else who he sort of resembled. Anyway, he shows up, and he's wearing T-shirt and jeans, okay, you know, kind of, you know, normal attire. And so we sit down and we talk out the concept, and then the next step is to go off and write the outline. Now, one of the things that David and I learned from working on MASH was the value of research. And I talked about this a few weeks ago on the pilot uh, episode about, um, about the podcast episode about pilots. But um, we saw that there was going to be a TV special, a live TV special called the Don Kirshner Rock Awards. And this was one of those bullshit award 
ceremonies like the American Music Awards, which is something that Dick Clark dreamed up, and the Billboard Music Awards and the MTV Music Awards. It's just, you know, anyone who can get a deal with uh, a network can have one of these award shows. So this was the Don Kirshner Rock Award. I don't think the Don Kirshner Rock Award lasted maybe more than two or three years. But we said, uh, hey, you know, this would be good research if we could go to the Don Kirshner Rock Awards. And he said, fine. And he arranged to get us VIP tickets right down in the front with a lot of the performers. And it was going to be a live show to the East Coast. So 5 o'clock West Coast time is when it would air. And it was at the Hollywood Palladium. And the one thing they said was, this is a very classy affair. You guys have to wear tuxedos. Oh, shit. Neither of us owned a tuxedo. So we go to a tuxedo rental place. And we're looking at tuxedos. And the guy says, well, what is this for? And we said, well, we're going to the Don Kirshner Rock Awards. He said, you can't just get a white or black tuxedo. I mean, you know, this is a rock awards. You know, you got to look hip. You got to look groovy. Okay. I didn't even know that groovy was still a word in use back then. But he talked us into more colorful tuxedos. So we put these things on and we, you know, meet our dates <laughs> to go to the Rock Awards at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And both of our dates take one look at us and fall on the floor laughing. Because we are wearing brown tuxedos with peach ruffled shirts. We were a couple of fucking idiots to be talked into this. But we thought, oh, you know, we're going to look really cool. <laughs> so they're laughing their ass off. And uh, so we go to the Rock Awards. And, of course, as we're walking down to our seats, you can just see people looking at us like, you know, these guys look stupid. You know, and considering some of the outfits that rock stars wear to these events, for us to look stupid, we had to really look stupid, which we did. So we are sitting, like uh, I said, you know, right down in front, we're probably row seven or eight, and... Uh, and we're kind of goofing around. And um, and they call out from the stage with about five minutes to go before the show. And they say, uh, is Shaka Khan here? Shaka Khan? And, and I went, oh, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I don't I'm here. And the woman who is sitting in front of me, her head spins around. And she goes, hey, fucker. I'm Shaka Khan. Oh, oh, okay. That was my introduction to Shaka Khan. So we sit through the Rock Awards. I think Olivia Newton-John was the host. 
Um, Rod Stewart was there, and I don't, I don't remember. Some research. Uh, we didn't learn shit. So now this thing is over at, like, 7 o'clock West Coast time, and we're in Hollywood wearing brown tuxedos with peach ruffled shirts. Where are we going to go for dinner? And we don't look like complete morons. At the time, across the street of CBS Television City, there was a Polynesian-themed restaurant called Kelbo's. And if you grew up in L.A., you know what I'm talking about. And it was Polynesian with, you know, drinks out of skulls and, you know, volcanoes going off and shit like that. It was it was so tacky. I mean, there were Polynesian restaurants. That was a theme. It was a very popular theme from the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And there were some very classy ones, like uh, Trader Vic's was very big. And there was Don the Beachcomber and the Luau. You know, so there were some very upscale places. And then, for the idiots, there was Kelbo's. So we walk into Kelbo's at 7.30, wearing tuxedos. We didn't have a reservation. And nobody from the host to the waiter to any of the other diners even gave us a second look. We totally fit in. So that was our research. Okay, now we finish the outline. And we turn in the outline to Alan Carr. And Alan Carr says he has some notes. Again, can we meet him at the Hill Haven Lodge at like 5.30? Okay. So we get done with work for MASH and we drive up there. And again, he's late. He's on the set. But they figure this time it might be a little bit longer. It might be an hour or more. But they lead us out to this lovely patio where they leave us a bottle of fine wine. And at the time, a very popular posh restaurant in Los Angeles, Chasen's, used to feature this ice mountain of seafood. It had lobster chunks and crab chunks and shrimp and I think it cost like $200, something like that. Well, they had one of those for us. So we had a bottle of wine and we had this ice mountain of seafood. And we finished the wine. I mean, we were there for like an hour and a half. We finished the wine. We polished off the ice mountain. And we were both getting really punchy. To the point where there was a ceramic flamingo nearby. And I thought, could we steal this? How would, how would we get away with this? Um, 
one of us had like a, a small briefcase and we thought, well, you'd think he would notice if we stuck it in there and there were these two legs coming out of the briefcase. Well, we kind of laughed about that and, and we were, you know, just punchy as hell. And then we hear, hello, hello, I'll be right there. It's Alan Carr. And Alan Carr now sweeps in. And again, you got to picture this. He has thick cold cream all over his face. I mean, thick, a layer of cold cream all over his face. And he is only wearing a flowing white caftan. This is our producer, ladies and gentlemen. Well, he comes in, and David and I get one look at him and go, ah, because we know if we even glance at each other, we're just going to fall over laughing. This is the most bizarre thing ever. And he's got his outline with notes with him. And he sits down and joins us and gives his notes. And we're like going, uh, uh-huh, okay, yeah, right, okay, yeah, we can do that. Mm-hmm, sure, fine, fine. Again, if, if, you were a, if you were a third party and you just happened to see this scene of this guy and cold cream and a caftan giving notes to two drunk writers. And all I could think about was that flamingo and how he, he was, he was way, way too focused to, to even realize had we left with the flamingo, which, which we didn't. Anyway, we said, okay, hey, we'll, we'll write this. It's going to take a couple of weeks, um, but we'll, we'll write this. And he led us through the house, and we walked out, and we got to the front lawn. We couldn't even get to the car. We were rolling on the grass in front of the giant Oscar, just laughing. This was our note session. So when are we going to write this thing? Uh, we sure couldn't write it during the week. And so we really needed to set aside time to write it on the weekend. And so what we did was we rented a hotel room uh, for the Saturday night. And we spent all day Saturday and all day Sunday cramming. And we wrote one act one weekend. And then the following weekend, we did the same thing. And it was actually a pretty fun story. Again, it's this midnight special type of show. She's the music booker. This week, they're booking like a Linda Ronstadt type character. And she comes in and she's just coming off of a tour. And she's like totally fried. And the paparazzi and the demands of being a star are really getting to her. So uh, Jan, our heroine, suggests that she come and stay with her in her dingy West Hollywood apartment. 
And, um, you know, that's all fine. You know, they're kind of bonding, getting to know each other. But then all of the entourage arrives. And so her apartment is completely trashed and comedy ensues. And eventually she saves the day and the Linda Ronstadt character performs on the show. And one of the things that uh, Alan was saying about the show is that we could have a musical act each week. And because of all of his connections, he could get Linda Ronstadt or... Bonnie Raitt or the Eagles or Billy Joel or whoever to guest on the show. And we thought, yeah, okay, that'd be great. What we didn't say to him, of course, is uh, can Bonnie Raitt and um, Linda Ronstadt act? Can Linda Ronstadt deliver a joke? Um, But again, we weren't going to stay with the show. So it really was not our problem. Also, uh, I do not know what episode four of this series is. And yet again, uh, I wouldn't be the one writing it. Okay, Alan had notes on our first draft, which we expected. He said he was very pleased and he had, he had some notes. At this point, he was shooting at night and he couldn't get away during the day. So we said, all right, could we do this by phone? And he said, no, no, we we have to do this face-to-face. So I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. If we can't do it by phone, then we're in for a shitload of notes. We said, look, um, if you're shooting at night, then there's a big conflict because we're only free at night. We're working on MASH during the day. We cannot get away go to the Hillhaven Lodge at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We said what we can do is maybe sneak out for an hour and get lunch at a nearby restaurant on Pico Boulevard. And he begrudgingly, uh, uh, you just tell, he was not pleased with this suggestion at all. And he went, uh, uh, all right. So we made a date to go to Factors, which is a nearby deli. And he shows up, fortunately, wearing a T-shirt and jeans. He was not in his his caftan. But I've never seen anyone so uncomfortable in a restaurant. It is like we said, hey, Alan, let's uh, meet in the Proud Boys headquarters. (laughs) Okay? So... You know, he's kind of in a pissy mood anyway. And now he starts giving us the notes. And these are the kind of notes that he gave us. Uh, You guys um, have it that she's staying in a Hilton hotel. Uh, She wouldn't stay at a Hilton hotel. She would stay at a Hyatt hotel. Okay? Uh, What else? The uh, sound check... You know, you have her at the sound check uh, at like 5 o'clock. It would actually be earlier. Sound checks would probably be more like 2 or 3 o'clock. Okay? These were all the notes. There were six or seven of these, and they were all technical music star-related 
production notes. And we said, okay. Again, I'm thinking, we couldn't do this by the phone? This would take 10 minutes by the phone. It took us maybe an hour to do the second draft. Okay, so we turned it in, and now he's very happy. And everyone at the studio was happy. I think it was Columbia at the time. Everybody was really pleased. And they turned it into CBS. And CBS's initial reaction is, oh, this is wonderful. We love this. This is great. So we're like, oh, okay, we're in good shape here. And CBS says, okay, um, so come on in. We have our second draft notes. And Alan Carr goes, what? What do you mean, notes? CBS said, well, yeah, you know, we have our notes. And when Alan Carr signed his deal with CBS, he assumed, incorrectly, that he would have complete autonomy and that no one was going to give him any notes about anything. Mr. Carr did not understand how television works. <laughs> CBS said, uh, we don't give that to anybody. We don't give that to Norman Lear. We don't give that to MTM. We don't give that to anybody. Come in and get your notes. We're very excited about this project. And Alan Carr said, no, we're not going to do notes. And David and I called Alan and said, look, we're happy to do these notes. Whatever they are, we always expected going in that there would be notes. So let's just take the meeting and do the notes and we'll move on. They're very excited. Nope. Nope. He pulled out of the project. He pulled out of the project. He pulled out of the deal at CBS. Needless to say, the project just died. And on again, for us, it's like, well, uh, you know, we weren't going to stay with this, but, you know, it's a good project and it is a pretty good chance of getting on the air. And it's a funny pilot. We'd kind of like to see it actually realized and produced and we're happy to do these notes. Nope. So the project died. I then called the VP of comedy development at CBS, who at the time was a gentleman named Andy Siegel. And I knew Andy Siegel because at one time, Andy and I were in the same Army Reserve unit. So I got on the phone with him and he said he was like mystified. This is never he's never had somebody pull out of a show for this reason. And I said, so, Andy, I'm just curious. Were there a lot of notes? And he goes, no, you guys could do this in like a day. You guys could do this while we're casting. No. And yet. <laughs> for all of that, the project died. So again, pilots get passed on for any number of reasons. This was one of the strangest. On the other hand, 
We knew going in that this was going to be kind of a weird project, and it certainly was. But we got some huge laughs. Unfortunately, we did not get a show on the air. We were never invited to the King Tut Disco, and we never stole the Flamingo. And that is my war story for this week on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, to Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I will write you back. Uh, I am posting some of my cartoons on my Instagram account, Hollywood and Levine. Please follow me there. Also, I am on Twitter, uh, at Ken Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week right here on Hollywood and the Vine.